As you um, no doubt are aware, on uh, Palm Sunday, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, uh, and most people uh, who were there at the time thought that they were seeing their king coming to reestablish the nation of Israel. Most people who were getting excited and shouting, Hosanna, were the Jewish people who had been dominated for so long by the Romans and um, had this promise from God that someday the glory days of Israel would be restored. And on Palm Sunday, most people thought, this is it. This is our king riding into Jerusalem. And uh, in Matthew chapter 21, what, which was read for you, uh, you saw the people taking palm leaves and putting them in front of that donkey and shouting Hosanna, which means save, save us. And uh, that was uh, what people thought that they were seeing. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the people misunderstood what was really going on on Palm Sunday. And when we turn to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 19, and we read the gospel account of Palm Sunday from Jesus' perspective, uh, we see an entirely different kind of reaction to what's going on on Palm Sunday. And so I'm in Luke chapter 19 and verse um, 41 where we read these words. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. He cried. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, if only you understood what was going on here, if only you listened to what I've been plainly telling you, if only you got it, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He's talking to the Jewish people. He's talking to the people of Israel. The people put a lot of credence in what they were seeing with their physical eyes. They mixed in their own wishful thinking. They misunderstood their scriptures, the Old Testament. And they created for themselves what I think Peter would call a dying hope. By the end of this week, Jesus is crucified, dead, and buried. And the people are back to ho-hum, ho-hum, just as it was before. Um, even on Mount Olivet, as Jesus was leaving to go back to heaven, the disciples asked the Lord, you know, is this the time you're going to restore Israel? The people took what they saw, they mixed in some wishful thinking on their part. They misinterpreted the scriptures and they created for themselves a dying hope. And you know, um, it just seems to me so often that we take what we see, we add wishful thinking, we play loose with the scriptures, and we set ourselves up for what Peter, I think, would call a dying hope. They put their belief 
and what it looked like to them and missed out on what was really happening. If you turn to John's account of Palm Sunday, you know, we have four Gospels, and uh, each of the Gospels give a different view of the life of Jesus when he was here. And in John's Gospel, Jesus is also talking on Palm Sunday. And uh, uh, John chapter 12 and verse 19, we have the Pharisees, the Jewish hierarchy's uh, opinion of what's going on here. Uh, They're uh, observing what's happening on Palm Sunday. And so the Pharisees say to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. So the Pharisees also are taking what they see and they feel threatened. The whole world is going after him. We have to do something about this. But again, notice what Jesus says, verse 23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus, of course, is aware that he's going to the cross to die. Up to this point in time, there's only one Jesus in the world. But if this Jesus dies on the cross, he will come back and create a whole bunch of Jesuses. Talking about you and I. Talking about the point of his death on the cross. Talking about all that the Old Testament pointed to up to this point in passages like Isaiah chapter 53. And how when Jesus takes his life and offers it for us, that his life then is recreated in us. And that Jesus went to the cross fully knowing what he was doing. And he goes on, uh, verse 27, he says, Now my heart is troubled, but what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. And God says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So the crowd speaks up, the crowd of Jewish people, the Pharisees. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and he hid himself from them. And then notice verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. They still would not believe him. Palm Sunday from Jesus' perspective. So here's my question for us this morning to ponder. What do you trust more? What you see and how things seem to you or the word of God, the words out of Jesus' mouth? Which do you trust more? What you see 
and how things seem based on what we see, or what Jesus says to us. What do you trust more? And I think it's a big question because your soul hangs in the balance. Uh, I'm always trying to tell people that we have a body, a soul, and a spirit, and that with our body we see and we hear and we touch and we connect with the world in which we live, and that seems like reality to us. But when we become Christians, our spirit comes alive, the spirit of God gets inside of us, and all of a sudden we're able to see and hear and, and touch and think the way God thinks and the way God sees. And there are these two realities that sort of compete to influence our souls, how we think, how we feel, and how we make choices. And what is more real to you? What you see with your physical eyes or what you see with your spiritual eyes? In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, the apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church and he said, oh, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened so that you could see from God's perspective the reality that he sees when he looks at our world and when he looks at people and when he looks at us. What's more real to you? What you see with your physical eyes? There are some people who say, you know, unless I see it, I don't believe it. I say, oh, I pity you. Because there's so much more to see with the eyes of your heart than there is to see with your natural physical eyes. And so I think at any given moment, we are always being influenced by what we see either with our body's eyes or with our spirit's eyes. And our soul is influenced. Our thoughts, our feelings, our choices at any given moment are influenced by which eyes we're really seeing with. And so sometimes people will say something like this, you know, if only I was alive when Jesus was here. If only I could have been there myself on Palm Sunday. You know, if only I could have uh, eaten a little bit of that bread and fish that Jesus made when he fed 5,000 people, you know, it'd be so much easier to believe. If only Jesus had healed me. Wow, then I get it, you know, then I'd then I'd, I'd be a real believer in Jesus. And, and so if only I saw a miracle, you know, uh, then I get it. But you know what? The public ministry of Jesus is proof that that's simply not true. Notice that 37th verse. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs, the people refused to believe in him. Seeing Jesus with your physical eyes is no advantage. These people saw Jesus with their physical eyes, but they didn't love him. Seeing Jesus with spiritual eyes, seeing Jesus with your heart, seeing Jesus by the Spirit of God helping us to see what God sees is what makes the radical difference in our lives. These people saw all the miracles, you know, they heard all the teaching. Sometimes people think, oh, if only I could have been in the crowd and heard Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe I'd be a stronger believer. But I would tell you that they have no advantage. People who see Jesus with the eyes of their heart, listen, reorient their lives around what they see. People who see Jesus through the eyes of God's Spirit reorient their lives, their souls in particular, the way they think, the way they feel, and the way they make choices. They reorient their lives once you see Jesus with your spiritual eyes. 
There is no real advantage to seeing Christ with our body's eyes. It's the eyes of faith that matter. And I would say, in fact, that we have the advantage because we no longer just have the Old Testament like those people had who saw Jesus with their physical eyes, but we have the New Testament which records for us the very words of Christ. And by the apostles, the application of those words of Christ and deeds of Christ to our lives. We have the advantage over those people who lived and saw Jesus with their physical eyes. And so Peter, in our study of Peter, is writing to people, okay, who are very much unlike Peter, but very much like us. They had never seen Jesus with their physical eyes. And so look what Peter says. First Peter chapter 1, I think it's page like 1200 in the Bibles there in the seats. And so Peter says this in verse 8 to the people that he's writing to. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And the result of loving and believing in Christ is that you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. <laughs> what a verse that is. Written right to us who have never seen Jesus with our physical eyes. Even though you've never seen him, you love him. Because you're enabled by God's Spirit to see through our spiritual eyes. And so Peter's kind of contrasting himself with his readers. Peter himself saw Jesus a lot while he was here. Uh, but it wasn't until Pentecost when the Spirit of God came and got into the Apostle Peter that he really saw Jesus and it changed his life. We did a whole study of Peter before and after Pentecost. If we were to take snapshots of Peter before and after, we'd see two different people. What got into Peter? The very Spirit of God. The eyes of his heart were opened, and he could see Jesus for who he really was. And Peter's readers are enabled to see through the eyes of their hearts, uh, even as Peter was after uh, the Holy Spirit came. And so until uh, the people who saw Jesus with their physical eyes only could open their hearts to him, they really had no advantage. These people, however, chose to love him. Even though you have never seen him, you love him. The word is agape. It's the highest, uh, well, there's a number of words in the Greek language for love. The word agape is the most intense kind of love, and it conveys a deep sense of affection and commitment. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And so I just wanted to pose the question to you this morning. You know, would people say of you that you're somebody who loves Jesus? Who loves Jesus? Would you say if you were to make a list of the people that you really love, that Jesus would be at the top of that list? That you love him? I know you know about him. I know you study about him. I know you kind of see through your mind's eyes, kind of like the people on Palm Sunday saw and, and know a lot of facts about him, but do you love him? That's an important question. You know, Peter, when he messed up, remember when Peter denied knowing Christ even? I said, I don't know. Jesus only asked him one question. Remember when he got back together there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee? And, and Jesus only asked him one question. He said, Peter, do you love me? He had to ask it three times to Peter. So I think, you know, it's a fair question to ask ourselves. Do, do you love me? And, uh, and Peter said, oh, you know I love you. Well, then, come on. 
Feed my sheep. Love my people. Get involved. Let's move. Because if you love somebody, you always act on that love. To love somebody is to put somebody else first. Isn't that really what love is? That's why the motto of our church is God first. God first. Because you know what? The number one command in the whole Bible, Jesus said, if you want to know what it all comes down to, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because it's our love that connects us to Christ. It's our love that connects us to God. Do you love Jesus? Do you put him first? Three times the Lord had to ask this of Peter in order for it to sink in with Peter, right? And so it's a, it's a great question. Is it true of us? Is Jesus at the top of the list of the people that we, we love? I know we know about him. I know we study about him. I know we're anticipating him coming back, and I, we know a lot of things about him and, and so on and so forth. But do we love him? Um, do we love him? In 1 Corinthians 16, at the very end of the chapter, it says, if anybody does not love the Lord, let him be anathema. Anathema means let him be cursed. Do we love the Lord? Or do we only see him with the eyes of our physical being, kind of like the people did on Palm Sunday, and this is what you can do for me. That's not love. That's not love. That's not our love. That's God's love. God has done first for us. Put him on the cross in our place. And so God always goes first. God loves first. But the question is, do we love in response? The Bible says we love because he first loves us. Do you love the Lord? Even though you have not seen him, you love him, Peter says. You know, sometimes love is expressed, I guess, by listening, by that kind of adoring, silent listening, like Mary and Martha. You remember the incident of Mary and Martha? Uh, Sometimes, I guess, love uh, would be expressed uh, through tears, through emotions, sometimes out of sadness, sometimes out of joy, sometimes the the emotional, you know, we all have a head and a heart, and and, and to love somebody, you, you need to love them with both your head and your heart, and I think Jesus was a perfect balance of the head and the heart, but there is an emotional side to our life, and and sometimes those tears are irrepressible, right? I mean, there's, don't you have this? I have this, this certain music that just, I can't not be moved at a heart level. I don't know, music just has a way of doing it. Um, maybe love gets expressed when we serve other people, the Lord's people. Like the Lord said to Peter three times, yeah, you say you love me, then come on, feed my sheep, tend to my lambs. Love my family. Sometimes love is expressed in obedience. Sometimes love is expressed in witnessing. Don't you think? Because we always talk about the ones we love. Right? We always talk. Guys, you know, yesterday I see the rose is still on Jeannie's seat there. Yesterday we had a funeral for um, uh, Jeannie Campbell. And, uh, you know, different people. I met different people. And it seems like everybody's got a phone with a picture on it of their grandkid, you know. We always talk about people we love. And so witnessing is a, a, an expression of our love. Do you, do you love Jesus? Are you somebody who loves the Lord? Do you see him with the eyes of your heart to the point where you reorient your living around what you see? Or do you only see him like the people on Palm Sunday? This is what you can do for me. You can get me into heaven. Great. 
You can do this for me. You can do that for me. Why don't you heal me? Then maybe I'll believe in you, and so on and so forth. And then the second thing you notice that Peter says here in the second half of the verse, he says, even though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. You believe in him. You put your faith in him. Um, Here's another great question. Who do you believe? (laughs) Who do you believe? You ever kind of ask yourself that question? Who do you believe? I just, uh, there's not many people that you should believe. But there is the Lord of the universe, and he invites us to believe him. Now, note that this believing, this kind of believing, is not contingent upon what you see. Even though you don't see him, you believe him. This is believing that's not contingent upon what we see with our physical eyes. Uh, It's not contingent on what things look like to us. Um, There are some people who will say, you know, um, I talked to a young man recently and his marriage is kind of going south. And, um, you know, he says, I I just don't believe in her anymore. And I say, oh, that's good. You should have never believed in her in the first place. Put your faith in the Lord. He'll change you and she'll change you know, I just don't believe in her. I'm, I'm waiting for her to change so that I can change. And, no, no, no. Put your faith in the Lord. Trust the Lord. Be the best husband you can be for Jesus' sake. And watch what happens. And so, you know, our faith is not contingent on what we see with the eyes of our bodies, but on what we see with the eyes of our heart. And Peter learned this. And so in verse 8, the Bible is telling us that when we see with the eyes of our heart, we'll love Jesus. To love somebody is to put somebody first. Put somebody else first. You know, you can give of yourself without loving. But you can't love without giving of yourself. Do you love Jesus? And then second, Peter says, and, and, and we'll believe in Jesus. To believe in somebody is to trust him. To take him at his word. To act on what he says as if it were true. And on Palm Sunday, you know, the people saw what they're physicalized, but they didn't believe him. They didn't love him. They weren't about to commit themselves. At the end of Jesus' life, there were very few people who were willing to commit themselves to him in love and faith. Do you love him? Do you believe him? Because love and faith are linked. The love and faith are what join us to Christ. And when love and faith are genuine, Peter says, when that's a reality, they create in us, and I love this, a joy that's inexpressible. That the backdrop to the Christian life, that, the, that, that the, what the world should see when they encounter the Christian community is this underlying, inexpressible, glorious joy. That when your love is right and when your faith is right, it combines to create this kind of joy about the reality we're living, about the reality of the kingdom of God that has come into our world and that resides in us. And so when I look at this verse and I think about it, I think it's a sort of a test. And I kind of thought about it this week and said, you know, if the reality of joy is not in your life, then I would say, you know, maybe I need to go back and say, do I really love Jesus and do I really believe him? Because love and faith ought to combine together to create this kind of joy. And then I want to say to some Christians, you know, if that joy that's uh, inexpressible is in your life, notify your face and allow it to 
to, to be there. Because the world desperately needs what only God can give. And it's a joy that comes from God, and it's a glorious joy. It's not a trumped-up thing. It's not something you can work up. It's not, you know, it's a joy that's irrepressible, that comes out, that people sense. Like, how in the face of Jeannie's uh, death of only being 52 years old, how could we come together and sing and have the band and celebrate her life and so on and so forth? How could we do that? How can there be this kind of joy? I had several people from her business talk to me at, at the funeral and say, you know, I've never been to a funeral like this. I said, well, you know, there's a joy about knowing the Lord that transcends even death. And, uh, and I think it's because people are able to see Christ not through the eyes of their uh, flesh, but through the eyes of their heart. You remember um, a guy by the name of Thomas, one of Jesus' buddies? And uh, in John um, chapter 20, uh, Thomas is here, right? In John chapter 20, and um, Jesus has come back from the dead, verse 25. And uh, listen to Thomas. Thomas, who's called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, hey, we have seen the Lord. Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, this is Thomas. He's been with Jesus for three years. He's seen the miracles. He's heard the teaching. He's been eyeball to eyeball with Jesus for a whole... Unless I see it... And Jesus had explained how he was going to die, how he was going to come back, but Thomas isn't going to believe it until he sees it. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Jesus goes right to Thomas. He says, look, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. (laughs) He says to Thomas. Then Jesus said this, and this is for us. He said, because you have seen me with your physical eyes, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me with their physical eyes and yet believe, like us. Blessed, extra blessed, are people that Peter is writing to who have not seen the Lord and yet believe because they see with the eyes of their heart. Um, And and how does this, you know, all get applied in 2 Corinthians? You remember the Apostle Paul starts to uh, talk about what this means for us and so forth. And and in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, look, we fix our eyes not on what's seen, Kind of an odd statement, don't you think? We fix our eyes on what's not seen. He's talking about the eyes of our heart. We fix our eyes on what's not seen, okay? For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul is saying we look with the eyes of our heart, and we see an entire different reality. And it changes my soul changes my thoughts, my feelings, my choices. And then he goes on and he says this in, the, um, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse um, 16. He says, look, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't look at people the way the world looks at people. He says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, 
At one point in time, we looked at Christ as another human being, fascinating human being, interesting human being, but just as a human being. Paul is saying, at one time, we regarded Christ that way, but we don't do that any longer. We don't see him the same. We see with the eyes of our heart now. And then he goes on and he says, um, therefore, if anybody is in Christ, they're a whole new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. First, there was one seed. Now there's a whole bunch of seeds. And just what is that ministry of reconciliation? It's this, verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. You and I have the privilege of taking the message of Christ and sharing with people that God is no longer interested in holding people's sins against them. This is the good news. This is the grace of God. We don't see Christ as just another human being. We don't see like the people saw on Palm Sunday. We see that God is reconciling the world through Christ on the cross and through the resurrection, just as the Old Testament and Christ himself said. You know, we saw from verses 6 and 7 in 1 Peter that Christians have trials like everybody else, but that Christians have another reality going on in their life in the midst of their trials, a, a resource in their spirit that's able to feed our souls. So that we can live in a state of joy based on the love and the faith that we have in our Savior. It's a foretaste of what's coming to us when Christ comes back. It's the beginning, you know, of what God wants to give us. And it's for now. And look at the next verse here in in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with his inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving, present tense. You are receiving today the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation of your souls. You are receiving today the reformation of your thoughts, your feelings, your choices that is making you into the person that you're going to be in eternity. You're not receiving it all. There's more to come in the future. But right now, here today, Christianity is not some pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by type of faith. Someday this will all come together. But no, no, it's right now. We are receiving the outcome of our faith today. The restoration of our souls, the right thinking, the right feelings about ourselves and other people, the right choices, the ability, the, the reality of our salvation is settling in on us. We are not the same people today as we were a year ago. If we see Christ through the eyes of our heart, we are changing the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the fruits of, of the presence of the Spirit of God, uh, the increase in our understanding of the way the world is and the way Christ is and what God has been doing uh, through history. And so all of that is in, you know, happening. And, and we're being refined, if you will, uh, restored in our souls. Love the 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I want for nothing, because one of the things he's doing is he's restoring my soul. My thoughts, my feelings, my choices are getting back to being. Right now, we are receiving the goal of our faith, the restoration of our soul, the salvation of our soul. The word is psyche, which is to say the restoration of who God made us to be. We are becoming the person that God intended for us to be. And there's a freedom in that. And there's a joy in that. 
of being able to become the person that God created us to be. And so when we come to Christ and when we accept his love for us and begin to love him back and to believe him, we start to receive this salvation of our person. And there's a joy in being free to be who God created us to be. And we begin to peel off these layers of sin and ignorance and, you know, hopelessness and sadness. And, and we begin to experience the presence of the very Spirit of God in our life. And it's an irrepressible kind of joy that begins to bubble up as we become the people that God says he created us to be. It's a, a rescue of our person. Uh, it's an inexpressible joy to be who Uh, We are. But notice, if you will, carefully, the order of things here. Uh, Notice, if you will, that first it's believing and then it's receiving. You are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. First it's believing and then it's receiving. Unlike Thomas, who said, first I have to see then I'll believe. And I think far too often people try to approach God with this, you know, first I want to receive. First you heal me. First you heal my friend. First you get rid of this cancer. First you do something to prove yourself to me. And I want to tell you that the Bible says God has already gone first. He has already put his son on the cross. He has already chosen to love us first. He has already spoken first. He's written the scriptures for He's already gone first. And he says, first believe, and then you'll receive this salvation of your souls, this inexpressible joy. He's already gone first, you know. And I, I just oftentimes will run into people when we talk about approaching God and And people say, you know, I've been praying and I want God to do this. And if he would just prove himself or get me that job or, you know, heal my mother-in-law or, you know, at least move her out of the house or whatever, you know, first you have to do something. You have to prove yourself. And now Jesus says, uh, God has already gone first. First, you have to believe. It's kind of like the woman at the well. You remember? Um. Jesus says to her, you know, boy, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd ask me and I'd give you a drink that would cure your thirst for all your life. And she's like, give me that drink. And Jesus says, uh, you know, go call your husband. And all of a sudden, it's about something more. And what Jesus is saying in that encounter is that you need me. And I am the one who can quench the thirst that's underneath your life. First, you have to meet my son. God says. First, you have to know why it is that you need the gift of God, your salvation, the salvation of your soul. First, you need to understand how I see you. First, you need to uh, receive from him. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from the past, used to say, you know, a small amount of faith will bring you to heaven. But great faith, great faith and great love will bring heaven to you now. And that's what Peter is saying. You are right now in the present receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But first it's believe, then it's receive. So even though, you know, we have this great future promised to us, 
the Bible tells us that our, our salvation is in three parts, really. It's got a past, a present, and a future. And uh, in the past, you know, uh, when we first trusted Christ, the Bible says you're saved. You trust Christ the instant, like the thief on the cross with Jesus on Good Friday. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The moment you believe, barely nod your head in God's direction, you're saved. But then the Bible talks like Peter's talking today. There is the process in which you are currently being saved. There's a present aspect to our salvation. And then, of course, there's a future aspect that will be, you know, will receive the full benefits of our salvation when Christ returns. But today, in the present, when we believe, we begin to receive that uh, outcome of our faith. And so, even though we have this great future, uh, our spiritual life begins to bring glory into our lives even now, even more so in the future. So, love Christ. Worship Him. Ask the same question that Jesus asked Peter. Imagine Jesus asking you, do you love me? Even though you have not seen me, do you love me? It's a penetrating question. Do you love me? Because it's the great commandment. It's the most important thing. It's what connects us to Christ, this love and faith. Do you love me? And then believe Christ. Trust him. Trust what he says. Trust what he did. Trust the promises he makes. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? And then I would say enjoy Christ. Rejoice in him. Find your joy in Christ and receive from him as he restores your soul Uh, Receive truth for your mind. Receive peace and love for your emotions. Receive direction for your living. Learn to obey. I think there are three responses that God desires from us. Uh, First of all, to experience his love, to accept his love. He has gone first. He loves first. Experience the love. And then begin to embrace the truth of the word of God. Experience the love. Embrace the truth. And then enlist to serve Use the balance of your life to join on board what Christ is doing in the world today. We just had a couple of weeks of missionaries here. It's exciting some of the things God is doing in different places. But I think as Paul Varberg related to us, you know, there's a place for all of us. And I would tell you that when you experience God's love and you embrace God's truth and you enlist to serve, where those three things come together, you'll find the sweet spot of contentment in the Christian life. Experience the love, embrace the truth, and enlist to serve. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this passage of Scripture from Peter, just thinking about how, yeah, we're people who've never seen you physically, but we're enabled by your Spirit to see you through the eyes of our heart. And when we do see you, we realize there's something more than just physical going on. And, uh, Father, when we see you with the eyes of our heart and we recognize that your love is behind what happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday and that the God of the universe actually loves us so much that he would sacrifice his son. When we see with the eyes of our heart, Father, we can't help but reorient our souls the way we think, the way we feel, the way we make decisions around you. And so I pray with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of our hearts might be opened wider That we might see, Father, in in this way. And that seeing, we would love and we would have faith. And that as a result, there would be this joy. And that we would recognize that that's a product. That's a foretaste of the promises that you make to us 
that are going to be ours in the future, and that we would experience this outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.